Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Lost in Science, our special International Women's Day edition. My name is Claire and this week on the show I have two women joining me and we are welcoming back Manisha Bardwaj who is coming to us from Sweden and will tell us tales from the life of a research scientist who seems to be scaring moose for a living. Also on the show, we have paleontologist Adele Pentland, who is telling us the story of Mary Wade, an incredible pioneering Australian paleontologist whose research and interest spanned the ages of fossils like nobody else's has. Anyway, enough from me. Let's hear from these two awesome women on our International Women's Day episode. On with the show. So yes, it is International Women's Day and it is our International Women's Day special on Lost in Science. We are taking over the airwaves for the week and for this special we have the wonderful Manisha Badwaj, previous Lost in Science presenter and her triumphant return to Lost in Science. Manisha, it's so great to have you back. <laughs> It's so great to be back. Yay. This is so fun. <laughs> now, please, like, update us. Where are you and what are you doing? So um, I've been a bit lost on the planet this time. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I've been traveling around a little bit. I've actually started a postdoc out in Sweden. So I'm not in sunny Melbourne anymore. I'm in cold cold Sweden but it's really lovely here um we're actually starting into spring so it's a beautiful time of year now and yeah I've been working uh, at the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences for the last few years and here I'm continuing my work on the impacts of roads and railways on wildlife and just looking at how we can you know design our transportation structures in a way that we're not killing a lot of animals and causing a lot of collisions or fragmentation effects and things like that. Now, when you were in Australia and you were doing your PhD, also yep. congratulations, Dr. Benisha. Um, now we're... <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> now, when you were in Australia, you were, I remember you were studying bats. Uh, yeah, are you still studying bats or have have the species that you're working on um, extended a little bit further? Yeah, you're exactly right. I was working on bats while I was doing my PhD. Oh, in Sweden, I have made a few attempts to work with bats, but most of my projects are actually with a little bit larger animals. I'm mm. working mostly with moose and roe deer and wild boar. And I have um, just recently, um, we've published a paper on wolves as well. So does Sweden have a problem, um, you know, like the rest of the world does with, you know, where urbanization and urban landscapes butt up against natural habitats? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. So we have this, uh, I, I guess this is quite a global thing, but you can imagine roads and railways to lesser extent, but roads are pretty much dissecting every landscape that we have. Uh, we can, we're not very far from a given road. If it's a major road, maybe you can manage to be a bit further away, but usually there's something like a forest path or some sort of a small road that you will be close to, maybe even trails and things like that can have these fragmenting effects on, on wildlife. So uh, Sweden is not unique in any way in that way. Uh, we have roads everywhere and they, they're causing a lot of problems. Um, a lot of the problems that we consider most the problems with collisions. So we're really often trying not to, we're trying to reduce the collisions between animals and, and us. So relating it back to the Australian situation, uh, kangaroo collisions are such a big problem or wallaby collisions are such a huge problem. So in the same way, moose and roe deer or other, other sort of ungulate collisions are a big problem here. Um, you mentioned there that, you know, roads lead to something like habitat fragmentation. Can you tell us a bit more about why that is an issue for species? Yeah, so fragmentation has sort of different layers of effects, if you will. The actual road can dissect a habitat. So that kind of, if you will, it'll, it'll make two smaller habitats rather than having one large intact habitat. So that can be a problem for different species, depending on their needs and their requirements, what, what they well, how much space they require in order to have a territory or, or find sufficient food or even finding mates. The roads also, like the collision aspect, also uh, ties into fragmentation because if an animal is unable to cross the road, then they're effectively reduced from access. Like they, they effectively have less access to the rest of the landscape that they could benefit from. Uh, other fragmentation effects that we kind of think about less are things like roads introduce pollution into the environment. Mm. So we have chemical pollution, but we also have noise pollution and light pollution and just the presence of people can be mm. very stressful. So it creates this in, inhabitable or just a hard, a harsh environment for a lot of species to persist in. So it, it can range from different species to species. Uh, if you think about birds that are very vocal and they, they really rely on their, so their song to find mates and to express their territory, having heavy trucks will make that really hard for them to be able to communicate effectively. So impacts of roads can vary from species to species. Right. So obviously it isn't just a, you know, a physical barrier, but it can also be, you know, a sound barrier. Yeah, a behavioral barrier. Or maybe it's like we often for human safety, we clear the road verges because we don't want, uh, you know, trees uh, obscuring our view of, of uh, oncoming traffic. And maybe it's uh, there are other dangers with that. But that means that that cleared area is is not maybe not inhabitable for some species. It doesn't have the right vegetation structure for some species to persist. For some species, it's great. Maybe maybe you're creating sort of low-level vegetation that some uh, species really like, and or maybe you're creating some rocky vegetation or sandy vegetation that's really attractive. Or maybe you're sort of excluding predators. So the prey have a kind of a refuge in the roadside verges. So the, the issue can be quite variable and can be quite complex. How do, you, how do you benefit all the species and how do you create an environment beside the road where every species can persist? Sounds like quite a curly question. Do you, in your research, have any insights into how, how governments and how, how, yeah. <laughs> how we, can, we can do that? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I guess. Um, so I don't know. It's really tough. I think it really comes down to what the priorities of the government are. Um, I I advocate that we should try to protect more species rather than uh, just focusing on say endangered species or species at risk, like those species definitely, definitely need our attention. But if we can try to create holistic management um, plans that address a lot of species at the same time, I think that we get more bang for our buck in, in such situations. So I, I think it's sort of, it's a it's quite a hard question. There mm. are some typical mitigation strategies. Um, so crossing structures are quite popular. So crossing structures, do you mean, you know, humans build building green bridges yeah what we call a crossing structure is this built man-made built structure that allows for crossing often uh, the ones that get the most media attention are these huge beautiful vegetated overpasses or green bridges but we also have crossing structures in the way of underpasses so they go under the road the ones i see in australia quite often are sort of just like very narrow sort of rope looking structures above the road Exactly. And this is actually the a perfect example. So these are also overpasses, but these rope bridges are designed for those arboreal species, uh, possums or gliders that really uh, need these kind of structures to help them across the road. The structure of the mitigation strategy really needs to be targeted to the species that you're attempting to get across the road. And if if it's possible to target m- multiple species at the same time, that's that's, in my opinion, the best way to do it. Um, One question I always had about them is it seems like there's quite a distance between them. I wonder, you know, do the animals find them? That's a really, really good question. And I think this calls back to what I said earlier. It takes a lot of pre-study. Like we can't just chuck them up wherever we feel like it. We can't just chuck them up willy-nilly. We sort of need to know where are the animals Mm. where are the animals crossing where are we getting a lot of collisions and so it takes a lot of pre-work and a lot of researchers spend a lot of time sort of mapping out what the wildlife Mm. are doing and where where these structures would be most beneficial so manisha i mean it it's it's been a tough year well the last year's been pretty tough for everyone i can only imagine for everyone Yeah. Yeah. And um, everyone in Sweden. Um, But, you know, we are looking at a new year and yeah. And I'm curious, what what are your hopes in terms of your scientific research and the questions you want to ask in the coming you know, months and years? Yeah, that's a really interesting and hard to sort of pinpoint down kind of question um, yeah of course I'm really, yeah we uh, I'm really motivated by these ideas that we talked about earlier about sort of the light and the noise pollution effects because I think that we we pay a lot of attention to collision effects and things like that um, which are very valuable and they are very meaningful to society we should reduce the the risk of collisions but I think that we we also add a lot of other pollution into the environment that maybe we need to also focus on and see how we're having this more cumulative effect on the environment. So I'm quite interested in those kind of questions. But um, sort of on the reverse of that, I'm actually working on really cool project where we're using acoustic signals to motivate behavioral change in, mm. in wildlife. So what all of those words really mean is that we're, we're playing sounds and we're seeing if we can consistently get a, a response that we want. So, for example, these things could be used like if we want to use a sound to scare wildlife from undesirable places. So right. um, maybe we want to stop 
uh, wildlife from entering into crop fields. So how can we uh, scare them and scare them consistently with, with little chance of habituation? I'm also trying these sort of things on the railways and on the on roads. So when, a while, when wildlife are approaching, say the railway and a train is coming at the same time, can we scare the wildlife away so that they're off the tracks and uh, when the train is progressing, there's a, there's a lowered risk of uh, collision with the train. I'm interested in how sound is impacting wildlife, but I'm also using sounds to sort of scare wildlife. So I, I may be contributing to my own problem in this way. <laughs> the, we're trying different types of sounds, which is really fun and interesting because you sort of have to think, okay, what will the wildlife really respond to? And what will they respond to consistently and over time and like in, in the way we want them to respond? So we have things like just human conversation. So maybe the presence or the sudden appearance of people and they're like, oh, oops, we should not be here. We should not be visible. Mm. Oh, we have also like the sounds of, um, in Sweden. Um, dogs are often used in hunting ungulates. So maybe that's a sound that the wildlife are accustomed to that they, they can identify as a threat. So that causes them to run or to become vigilant or whatever the case may be. So we, we're trying many different things and some things are really fun because you can try basically anything, right? Like, so some things are like sirens or doorbells and things like that, do a novel sound or do, do weird things like just the sudden appearance of a random noise uh, have the strongest effect or should the noise or the sound have some kind of meaning to it? Does it need to reflect a, a known threat for it to be effective? So it's a super fun project and we get to, you know, we get to really watch what the animals are doing. So I spend a lot of my time watching videos on, on poor little moose that I've scared with a human sound <laughs> and things like this. So it's a lot of fun actually. <laughs> Well, Manisha, thank you so much for coming back to Lost in Science. It has been three years and we really do hope um, it won't be that long again. Oh, thank you so much. So, Claire, last time I was on, uh, you seemed super interested in paleontology. I'm not sure if you were just being super polite or... um, (laughs) If, you know, you've got the dinosaur bug like a bunch of other people. I love dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. So if you like paleontology, uh, have you heard of Mary Anning? I have heard of Mary Anning. Um, okay, this is what I know about Mary Anning. She was okay. uh, she was an English woman. Um, mm-hmm. She took a lot of walks by the seaside and um, she found a lot of fossils yeah, definitely English at the time, like paleontology was very much like the gentleman's pursuit. So not only did you have to be like a white, straight, cis man, you also had to be like, you know, pretty posh, fund yourself. And yeah, your religion was also really important. They were a few of the reasons why Mary Anning stuff. Um, so she collected a bunch of fossil material. I think she sold some of those specimens for other people to work on, mm. but she really couldn't help write papers and do any of that work because of her religion and because she was a woman at the time, which sucks. And it's good to know that we've come further down the line. I actually wanted to talk to you about a different Mary who was also a paleontologist, Dr. Mary Wade. Have you heard of her? I have not heard of Dr. Mary Wade. I'm not surprised because 
like even when I studied paleontology at uni, uh, the first time I heard about her was when I was actually working as a tour guide at the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Natural History Museum. So did Mary Wade have a really specific type of fossil that she worked on or quite a lot of different fossils? Like her career spanned more than three decades and when she started out, um, even like, you know, getting past sort of the student at uni uh, stage, she was working on micro paleontology, like micro fossils. And then, wow. you know, later on she was working on dinosaur footprints and a plesiosaur, which is like a marine reptile. Uh, so Mary Wade was born in Adelaide, South Australia, and she grew up on a grazing property in the northeast of the state. She studied by remote correspondence until the age of 13. So I guess, wow. you know, going to school every day was not an option for her. And it's not an option for everyone, certainly. She then went on to do her Bachelor of Science at the University of Adelaide. And she was actually one of the few women to study in the Department of Geology at the time. So when, hang on, when did she study uh, at the Uni of Adelaide? So this would have been in like in the early 1950s, I believe. Right. Okay. So not many women in geology at that time. What is it like now? I can sort of only speak to my experience, but when I was an undergrad student, it was pretty even, the ratios between um, male and female students. You know, that seemed pretty consistent across like undergrad, honours, masters and PhD students. But what I did notice was that most of my lecturers were men. And when I went to a conference in 2019, it was really interesting hearing Dr. Sue Turner uh, saying that, you know, it's really great to see that things are balancing up, but that we still have a little way to go. Mary Wade, one of the only women in her class to study geology, obviously she did further study though, right? Yeah. So after that, she did uh, her honours. And this is sort of earlier in her career. So she was working on micropaleontology, looking down a microscope and looking at these weird things called foraminifera. Foraminifera? Foraminifera. I think to everyone, say it like a wizard spell, just like shout it. (laughs) And then a lot of the time it works. (laughs) So what are they? What are they? Foraminifera. So they're super weird. So when you're walking along the beach, the sand, you think most of it is um, tiny grains of quartz. Like, But a lot of them are small, shelly creatures. So foraminifera are single-celled microorganisms and they make these beautiful calcium carbonate shells and they make them in all kinds of weird patterns like one looks like a bunch of grapes and it's called globigerina i'm pretty sure (laughs) there's all these different types of and then yeah she um she did her honors and then she stayed at the university of adelaide did a phd there and instead of working on the micro single-celled organism she moved on to the ediacaran fauna in south australia now, is ediacaran so, a paleontological word or is ediacaran um, like a place name? It's a place name. Oh, well, oh. actually, it's both, but it's okay. a place name first. Um, okay. So, yeah, really good question. Geologists are weirdly lazy in some ways and they'll name <laughs> time periods after locations. What's really fascinating about the ediacaran fauna is that they're some of the earliest multicellular animals. Um, unfortunately it's in sand and sand isn't great for preserving fossils I still remember to this day one of my lecturers 
was explaining, being like, imagine if someone tried to take a cast of your face using golf balls. <laughs> this is what these fossils are like. But yeah, these weird animals, are the, I think they used to think they were jellyfish because, again, like, simple in the fact that they don't have like internal organs as we understand them they don't have a nervous system they have a nerve net so it's not as organized and and obviously mary was attracted to them yeah it's either that or they were like you've nailed single-celled organisms we're yeah. going to give you multi-cell now yeah. and you can work your way up she leveled up, <laughs> she leveled up. and then yeah she uh, got her phd eventually stayed at University of Adelaide and she was appointed a temporary lecturer. So things were sort of going well, but at a certain point uh, she was actually told that there was no prospect of a permanent academic position. And that's why she left in 1971. Was that to do with the work that she was doing or was that to do with her gender? I think that was to do with her gender. Mm. Sadly. I mean, from what profiles I read online, that seemed to be the undertone. Two months later, she was starting to work as the curator of geology at the Queensland Museum. So a bit of a shift, move states. And yeah, from there, she was able to uh, take on different roles as well. It seemed that she rose to senior curator and she was eventually like the museum deputy director in 1980. So she was able to do a lot of great things there. I think it's there that um, she had a pretty big impact, but yeah, uh, again, continuing with the theme of working on, I'm putting air quotes in here, more <laughs> complex animals. Right. Mary Wade was working on nautiloids uh, later on in her career, sort of, you know, working through Queensland Museum, Cousins of Octopus, still a few around uh, today. And yeah, she worked on uh, Cambrian age ones and Ordovician age ones. So there's like millions of years between them. And she discovered a new family of them. And probably more importantly for the nerds, a (laughs) system for describing them. Because, you know, I I can only tell you that, you know, trying to read through something and it's everyone's using different terms. It's, yeah, at those points that I'm like, okay, just breathe. Everything will be fine. You know, lots of people think of paleontology as doing field work, you know, getting out there, discovering new stuff. And Mary Wade got to do a, quite a bit of that as well uh, with the Queensland Museum. So not only was she searching for stuff in Queensland, but also going to the Northern Territory as well. Wow. Um, and, you know, no big deal. As a result of all this work, they quadrupled the size of the fossil collections at Queensland Museum. Oh, my goodness. Not once, not twice, not thrice, but four times. Four times. Some of the really cool things that I didn't realize that she helped uh, contribute towards was she helped relocate a lost fossil dig site. And you're probably wondering, how do you lose a dig site? I, I, that was what I was wondering. You read my mind. It, it's basically down to having like lousy maps or references and field notes and stuff to go off. Um, <laughs> so it, it has happened before, but, you know, back in the day, they didn't know as much about paleontology and geology as well, particular sort of like local geology, like how things work, so soil profiles. But they relocated the site of a big long neck dinosaur, big sauropod. Um, so think something like a uh, brontosaurus, brachiosaurus, mm-hmm. that kind of dinosaur. Yeah. Um, but its name was uh, Rhetosaurus browni. 
what's really unusual about it is that it's Jurassic in age. So we don't have many Jurassic age dinosaurs. And this one's actually pretty good. I know they've got vertebrae, which is like the back bones and possibly some of the neck bones and like a very good looking back foot, I'm pretty sure, and some other bits and pieces. So again, Jurassic would be, it's more than 100 million years old. Mm, wow. Okay. And um, yeah, just virtually unheard of in, in Australia then. Yeah. Um, and again, like very important. So, when, you know, when you think about it, oh, if we don't have that many Jurassic Age dinosaurs in Australia, the ones that we do have become even more important to help us sort of relate back to, you know, what's happening with the rest of the world and I guess give us uh, a leaping pad to predict, you know, what uh, other dinosaur faunas might look like. Hard to pick a favourite uh, discovery of mine, um, but definitely very incredible. Um, Mary helped discover an exceptional plesiosaur, which is a type mm. of marine reptile. This was back 1989, so a local grazier, Ian Ivers, on his property marathon station. He notices there's bone, uh, a snout, actually sticking out of a dry creek and, you know, wow. follows it along. Uh, finds a skull, which is basically <gasps> complete, and then a very neat row of vertebrae trailing behind it. And um, he made the wise decision to uh, get in contact with the Queensland Museum, and they had a team out there. Uh, Dr. Mary Wade led excavations, and, yeah, they basically found a complete animal, and it's <gasps> absolutely beautiful. Wow. So uh, nicknamed Penny the Plesiosaur. <laughs> No idea why it's nicknamed Penny. It's the real thing is on display at Chronosaurus Corner in Richmond. And I reckon the cost of admission is worth it just to see that one specimen. Mm. But they do have a museum full of other incredible stuff as well. And you might be wondering, well, you know, she's done all this amazing stuff, worked on all these different fossils. Uh, Unfortunately, there is no Nobel Prize for paleontology and geology. Instead, Dr. Wade's contributions were honoured in 1994. She received the Queensland Museum Medal, and there is actually an award named in her honour as well for early career researchers. But I think at the end of the day, her legacy is the fact that she went out into these areas and she helped, you know, people out in rural communities understand the importance and the significance of their fossil finds and the Queensland Museum fossil collections became world-class during her time. I really don't think that that's something you can put a price tag on, and definitely when you think about how much paleotourism has sort of taken off in certainly central west Queensland, if it you know stays alive, then, yeah, that's, that's more important than any metal. And that's all we have time for on this episode of Lost in Science for International Women's Day. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Please get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1 or on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR. 
or just tune in again next week wherever you find us when we get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.